0: phone calls with a friend of mine who is an elder of a church up north, I won't say what city, but as he talked to me about the church that he's in, the troubles they're having, the politics, the infighting, the difficulties, I was one more time reminded how very, very, very fortunate I am and how blessed we are as a church body. We're a small church, for 14 years we've been a small church. What we do is remarkable for a small church because of the outreach via the internet and all the internet folk who are part of our extended congregation that allow us to do the things that we do. But here at GCA, it's a very straightforward, very simple structure. The way the leadership is structured is very straightforward and uncomplicated very biblical. Elders, deacons, there you go. And we kind of take care of everything. The service is very simple. We sing, we pray, we learn, we read the Bible together, we fellowship together. It's very straightforward. We don't have uh, committees, boards and panels and trustees that can get together and argue with each other about things. It's a very simple structure. And When I hear stories like the stories I heard this week, I am convinced again that this structure works, for lack of a better phrase, because all the complications and the politics and everything arise from a more complicated structure. So I mentioned that to Tom when I got here this morning, and he said, you know, God's been very good to us for 14 years now. And that's right. And I would be remiss if I didn't stop once in a while and just remind us all collectively of how very, very fortunate we are. I look around the room, and unlike every church I've ever been in, when I look around the room here, I don't see any two people who I know are at odds with each other. Every church I've ever been in, you've always known which family was feuding with which family. You always knew who had it out for who. You always knew who was competing for the pulpit and who was next in line. And you always knew all those church politics. And here at GCA, we just simply don't have that. And again, it's just God's good grace and good kindness to us that we've been able to survive this long without, uh, without a war. I'm very, very appreciative. Number one, to God for his grace to us, but number two, for you all, because this is your, your character, your personality. GCA, like any organization, has taken on the personality of the people who make up the organization, and it's a good personality. It's a personality of kindness and giving and care and taking care of one another. And that's exactly the way that it ought to be and far too often is not. So once again, I was reminded because in my earlier years, my goal was someday to have a big church, big pulpit, big influence, let the city know you're here, big, I want to expand, I want to be heard, I want big. No, this is good. This works for me. I'm happy here. And as long as God gives me breath, this is where I want to be. The only thing I will trade for GCA is heaven. And as soon as he gives me that option, I'm taking it. <laughs> Love you all. Bye-bye.
1: <laughs>
0: but I got to go. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Anybody who has listened to us for any length of time knows that I have frequently referenced the fact that of the 12 apostles that we find in the Gospels, we get the most complete, fleshed out personality profile of Peter. And starting in, well, let's see, starting in chapter 16, verse 13 the next three stories that Matthew recounts for us have to do with Peter. Peter is sort of at the center of it all. Whenever you talk about Peter and his history with the church, you have to talk about how the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, has exalted Peter to a station he doesn't actually have in the Bible. So we'll talk about that a little bit. But starting at verse 13, we see Jesus... Actually, extol Peter. It's, it's a good thing. Peter has said the right answer, and yet, right behind it, you're going to see Jesus call Peter Satan to his face. And so, Peter is one of those guys who has remarkable highs and lows. He has moments that are just like, well, Peter's got it. Peter has figured it out. And then you've got Jesus calling him Satan. And then you've got Peter. And John and James at the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter is one of the very few who get to see Jesus transfigured, transformed into his glory. And then, at the crucifixion, Peter denies him three times. And so you get this consistent personality profile of Peter. And his life, just like our lives, is full of moments of, I got it. I'm there. I'm solid. I got my ducks in a row. I know what I'm doing. I know what I believe. And and I got. And then you're going to go through periods of, well, I don't know. Do I believe? Am I even saved? You're going to go through struggles in life. It's good to know that you're in good company and that Peter himself went through very similar struggles. You're not alone in this human struggle. So that, believe it or not, was the very brief introduction. And we're already at the text. We are zipping along here. You are nodding way too quickly. It's like, yeah, let's go. <laughs> we're in shock. We <laughs> <laughs> can't handle it. Can't handle it. It's also the first Sunday of football season, regular season. And so I know. That I know. I know. There's a, there's a certain anticipation in the room.
1: And then, that explains the profile.
0: I, I deal with this every year right around this time where people are like, love you, Jim. Message, message. Noon's coming. Let's go. Kickoff. Titans are at three o'clock. First game of the day is at noon.
1: That won't make it to the internet,
0: by the way. That yeah, might. We'll see. Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. This is not Philippi where Paul went and wrote. That is in a different area that is known as Macedonia up north. This is actually an area that is on the very outskirts of Israel, the northern part of Israel. That area of Caesarea is named after, no surprise, Caesar. Because if you rule an area, you start sticking your name on it. And Philippi is named after Philip of Macedon. And then you get up to an area that Paul went to called Macedonia, and you find Philippi again. So Philip went around naming things after himself quite a bit. So that's why you have a couple of Philippis here. But it shows again that Jesus after going into the area of Tyre and Sidon and going into the wilderness where he fed the 4,000, it shows that he is purposefully not going south into Judea. He's not going into Jerusalem. And in fact, he's going to predict and tell his apostles that when he does go to Jerusalem, that he's going to be handed over, that he's going to be killed. And so he's actually staying away on purpose because he is on a time schedule. There is a particular year, a particular Passover, when he does finally go to Jerusalem and turn himself over, because it is finally his time. But until it's his time, you find him up there in the northern area and on the outskirts, sort of avoiding Judea. So we're told specifically that he came to the district of Caesarea Philippi. And he began asking his disciples, saying, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, first off, the fact that he used that phrase, Son of Man, is really important. Because remember their scripture. They don't have the New Testament. Their scripture is only what we would call the Old Testament. And in the book of Daniel, one of the most important names that the Messiah is given is that he is called the Son of Man. In one of the visions Daniel has, there is one like the Son of Man, showing that the Messiah, though he is God, is going to also be man. He is going to take on a human form. And so that predictive element in the Old Testament prophecies is played out in the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was born to a woman and is actually a man, and yet is demonstrating time and time again that he is God incarnate, and that is one of the reasons that the Jews are so angry at him and want to kill him, is that he does make himself equal with God, which they considered blasphemy, and so when he asks them, he doesn't say, who do people say that I, Jesus of Nazareth, am? he uses that particular name, that particular nomenclature that reaches back to the prophetic element that the Messiah was going to be also a man. And so he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist had been beheaded. He was dead. It's a tough one to believe that anybody would say that, but we do read That Herod, when he heard about Jesus, said, it's John the Baptist risen from the grave. Others say, you're Elijah. Well, the Old Testament closes. The last section of Micah, the last book in the Old Testament, says that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, God was going to send Elijah. So there is this Elijah expectation in Israel. So this one kind of makes sense. I can see that. Okay, you're Elijah. We're not going to admit that you're Messiah, but you might be a forerunner of the Messiah. You're Elijah. Still others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. The reason they would say Jeremiah is that in the way that the Old Testament was bundled in the Jewish scripture, the prophets were bundled separate from the writings and the poetry and separate from the books of Moses, the first five books, the Pentateuch. And the first of the major prophets was Jeremiah. And so sometimes they would use Jeremiah as the generic term for the prophets. And that's what's happening here. Some say that you're a Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They don't mean specifically you're necessarily Jeremiah himself, but you're clearly one of the succession of prophets, which again makes sense because when Jesus came on the planet, there hadn't been a prophet in Israel for 400 years. God had been silent during what we call the intertestamental period. So again, there's this fervent expectation. When will God send another prophet to Israel and tell us what to do and what our future is going to be? So Jesus might very well be satisfying that category. The one thing that they haven't answered here is people say you're the Christ. What they've said is, well, they've got a lot of opinions about you. And they might say you're John the Baptist. They might say that you're Jeremiah or a prophet. They might even go so far as to say that you're Elijah. What they're not saying is that you're the Christ. That's what's missing in that answer. So he said, but who do you say that I am? Now he's asking the 12. You've seen me. You've heard my teaching. You've been with me for several years now. What do you think? And it's Peter in particular, verse 16, and Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ. Christos is the Greek word that is just the parallel to your Mashiach in the Hebrew language. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. It's the same idea, same concept. You're the one sent from God who is going to be the deliverer of Israel. You're the anointed one, the specific one sent by God to solve our difficulties with God. You are the Christ, and on top of that, you are the son of the living God. Okay, now at this moment, Jesus is going to say, right answer, ding, 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 that's exactly right. That is who I am. But then Jesus does something really, really interesting, which is that he tells Peter, there is no way you could have figured that out yourself. If you know that about me, if you understand that about me, it's because my Father gave you the ability to understand who I am. Jesus would not allow Peter even the momentary instant of believing that he figured that out on himself, that he observed, that he watched, that he saw the miracles. That he compared it to the scripture, that he came to the conclusion that Jesus is in fact the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus would not allow him even the moment of thinking that it was his intelligence or his observation that came to that conclusion. So first he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. That's a good thing. You're blessed. Jesus himself has pronounced that you are blessed, blessed from God. God. But then he says, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Okay, that means all flesh, all blood. He didn't just say your flesh and your blood. No flesh and blood, no human being revealed this to you. It's not you. It's not any of the rest of the 12. It's not any teacher in Israel. Nobody revealed this to you through words, through logic, through theology, the only reason you know it, second half of the sentence, flesh and blood did not reveal it to you, but my Father who is in heaven. The only reason you know who I am, the only reason that you recognize me to be the Christ, the Son of the living God, is because God himself has blessed you with the capability to understand it. Now, if he would say that to Peter, who was an eyewitness to the things that he said and did, Peter who walked and talked with him for three and a half years, Peter who Jesus specifically restores three times, do you love me, feed my sheep, the relationship that he had with Peter was one of such intimate friendship. They had shared hard times together. They had shared meals together. They had shared, I have to assume, they had shared laughs together together. And yet, Jesus would not allow that Peter, who had all of that firsthand evidence, he wouldn't allow Peter to conclude that he was the son of God through any human faculty. It was only through God's revelation that Peter could know that. So then, think 2,000 years later, now suddenly we're talking about Jean II. We're going to talk about Jean II because he's sitting here on the front row and he's available. What do you really think? is Jean II's capability to figure out the things of Christ, given that he doesn't have the advantages that Peter had. He doesn't have the firsthand witness. He hasn't seen the miracles. He hasn't heard Jesus himself speaking of heaven like it was his living room. He hasn't had the advantages that Peter had. What are the chances that Jean II would be able to do what Peter couldn't do and figure it out for himself? None. There's just none. There's no capability. There's no possibility. And yet, you sit here week after week giving testimony to the fact that you believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of the living God. How is it you could do that? How is it you could come to that conclusion? It can only be because the God of heaven, the maker of heaven and earth, in an act of astounding grace, taught you that, opened your mind and heart to that, opened your ears, opened your eyes, gave you the ability to read, hear, and understand, and then by his Holy Spirit gave you faith as a gift so that you would repent of yourself and your works and turn to Christ and fully throw yourself on the finished work of Christ as your only hope of redemption and eternity in God's presence. There's no other explanation for it. Look at the theology that Jesus is developing here. He is pulling the rug out from under all human capability. When it comes to your relationship with Christ and your understanding of who Christ is, Jesus will not allow you even the briefest moment to think, that it's you doing it. You don't have the ability. You don't have the capability. Walk outside and see how long it'll take you to find an unbelieving heathen. How long will that take? Not long. Probably the first or second person you bump into. It's going to be really easy to find an unbelieving heathen. What's the difference between you and him? Yeah, God's grace. God was good to you in a way that he wasn't to that person. Now, that doesn't give us the ability to look down on the heathen. That doesn't give us the standing to say, I'm better than you. And certainly, we have no grounds to boast about because it wasn't us that did it. We weren't looking for God. We weren't seeking God. We weren't figuring Jesus out. We weren't pouring through the scripture to find out if it was true. We were changed by the overwhelming, overpowering strength of the Almighty, who is able to do whatever he wants with human beings, who, among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth, does whatever he wants to do, and no one can stop his hand, and no one can ask him what he's doing. And he has chosen some people and chose those people so completely and exactly that he wrote their names down in a book before the foundation of the world, knowing full well that he was going to make those people, deposit them here on the planet, and then introduce himself to them. And then give them the ability to understand him. And then he was going to draw them. And then he was going to put his spirit in them. He was going to change them, conform them, take out their heart of stone, give them a heart of flesh. That he was going to open their eyes and ears and capability so that when he taught them things like, My son, Jesus of Nazareth, is your Messiah, is your Christ, fully man, fully God, he's your Redeemer, he's the way, the truth, the life, he is your only hope for eternity, you would end up going, yeah, that's right. Not because of you, but because of the astounding kindness and grace of God. And by the way, if Jesus would say to Peter that that's a blessing from God, then we certainly ought to count it as a blessing from God. If you know anything at all about God, if you know anything at all about Christ today, it is because God, in phenomenal grace, has blessed you beyond measure. While at the same time being perfectly willing to leave the heathen in his heathen state. Paul asked the question in writing to the Corinthian church. He said, who has made you to differ? That's the King James version of it. Who made you different? There is all of humanity, and all of humanity is unbelieving and rebellious, and you're not. Why, asks Paul. And then he says, if it's God who has made that difference, why do you boast as if it wasn't him? So we have no grounds for ego. We have no grounds for pride. We have no grounds for thinking that somehow we're better than the heathen. In fact, we should be empathetic sympathetic to the heathen, knowing that if God does not convert them, judgment is right around the corner for them. We don't look down our nose at them. We don't despise them. We don't hate them. In fact, if they were hungry or thirsty, we would feed them, clothe them, do whatever we could to help them. But what we know for certain is no amount of begging, no amount of pleading, no amount of teaching, no amount of dangling them over hell is going to convert them unless God converts them. Because Peter himself, again, had more tangible evidence of who Christ was than I've ever had in my life. And even he didn't get credit for it. Even when he, observing the evidence, observing the scripture, observing the miracles, listening to Jesus' teaching, remember, he saw the 5,000, he saw the 4,000, he saw the, the man born blind, he saw the man who, by the pool of Bethesda, he saw Jesus doing remarkable miracles. You would think that any rational, logical person, having seen everything that Jesus did, couldn't help but conclude that he was God. And yet there were people who saw those kinds of things and killed him. And yet Peter saw those things and said, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you didn't figure that out. It's God that gave you the ability to understand that. So I say again, if you know anything today about God, if you know anything about Christ, You are remarkably, remarkably blessed in a way that the world at large is not. When Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, he actually said to God, I pray for those that you've given me. I pray not for the world. You have Jesus praying for you. That's a remarkable blessing. When he talked about the Holy Spirit, he called him the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. And Yet you've received the Holy Spirit. So it is God who is making these determinations. It is God who is distinguishing between people. It is God who is blessing some people who he calls his own people, who he gives to his son. We become the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And then there is the world, the generalized world, and the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit in his high priestly intervention prayer, Christ did not pray for them, and they're going to die, and they're going to be rightly and justly judged. And you're not, because you're that blessed. And you want to see how sinful we are? Despite the fact that you've agreed with everything I just said, you'll go back into your life and forget that. And you'll go back into your life and... uh, Start thinking you're part of the world. and Act like part of the world. You'll go back to your life, and you'll forget to be grateful every second that you're living and breathing because the God who made heaven and earth has been this kind to you. I mean, if you really got a hold of this, if you really understood this, if you really saw how good God has been to you, would you ever, ever stop saying thank you? I think if you had a glimpse, if you had even a sense of what the judgment of God is like. And the Bible describes it in no uncertain terms. Speaking of worms and speaking of fire and speaking of outer darkness and lake of fire and smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. I think smoke of their torment is a phrase that ought to make you shudder. The fact that God is willing to do that, that he is willing to judge, that he's willing to defend his own holiness and his own righteousness, the fact that he's willing to be like that and he's not going to do that to you. How do you ever stop saying thank you? How do you ever stop worshiping him? How do you ever stop glorifying his name? How do you prioritize other things over him? How is he not constantly the primary thing in your life? But we'll go back to our lives. We'll go back to our stuff. We'll get busy. Well, I think in some ways, again, it's reassuring to know that Peter is Peter. After having stated this, after Jesus extolling him and saying, you've been blessed by God and flesh and blood didn't tell you this, you would think that Peter would go through the rest of his time with Jesus Having gotten it now, I got it. I got it. I am connected. I am hanging. I've got it. But the story doesn't stop there. Verse 18. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overpower it, says the NASB, the King James, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, this is a key verse for the Roman Catholic Church because they argue that what Jesus just said is, you're Peter, and on the rock of Peter, I will build my church, which is why if you go to the Vatican and you go to St. Peter's Basilica, There is a statue that is supposedly Peter. It is not Peter. It is Jupiter. And he has a halo around his head. And the toes of the statue are wearing down because of the number of people who have kissed the feet of the statue. So basically they're just worshipping another god without even knowing it. They're worshipping another god. But by the way, even if the original artist who created the statue meant to create Peter, should people be kissing Peter's feet? No way. No, exactly. That is still idolatry no matter what. And after all the commands, especially the Old Testament commands against worshiping idols, the second commandment is you won't make any graven image that you would bow yourself down before it and worship it. And they're doing exactly that. And they call it Peter because of this verse. Now, listen to Jesus' description in verse 19, because the Roman Catholic Church believes that Jesus gives this authority to Peter, and then through apostolic succession, this authority given to Peter is passed down to the priests, the cardinals, and the pope via Peter. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's the way it reads in the English language. So the assumption is that what Jesus told Peter is, whatever you decide is what we're going to go with. If you bind something, then it's going to be bound in heaven. If you lose something, well, then it's going to be loosed in heaven. And so the assumption is that the Catholic Church has the right to forgive sin or to bind sin. It's really up to them. If you come and do what they say to do, then they can not only forgive your sin, but they can even get people out of purgatory for you because they believe that they have that kind of authority. When you look at the text, That's not what it says. Let's start with the name Peter. There are actually two different words that are being used here, both the Greek petros, which means a stone or a pebble, and then the word petra, which means large rock. Jesus did not equate Peter with the rock. He said, your name is pebble, little rock, little stone. On this Petra, large stone, I'll build my church. Because he used a different word, he couldn't be referring to Peter. So what is the large stone he was referring to? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, on that rock, I'm going to build my Ekklesia, my church, my outcalled. I've told you many times that the the English word church is the Greek word Ekklesia, even the English word church reaches all the way back to the kuriakon, those that belong to the kurios, those that belong to Christ. So when you say the word church, you're still speaking not of a building or an organization or a denomination. You're speaking of the people who belong to the Lord, the kuriakon, who belong to the kurios. But ekklasia ek, out, klosis, called. And so it means the out called, ekklesia, has the intimation of being individuals, and so it's outcalled ones, outcalled people. So you're being called out of the world to come be part of Jesus' specific group of out-called people, and that's what he's calling his church. Now, it was very common for people to call together a group. Anybody could call together any kind of group, and in the Greek language, that was still an ecclesia. You could go through the streets and say, today at noon, I'm going to be in the town square, and I have an announcement to make, and you could cry out in the street that that's what you were doing. At noon, a gathering would gather together, and that was called an ecclesia. That was an out-called gathering. You went about calling them, gathering them. They got together, and that was your ecclesia. So there's all these groups. There's all these gatherings. Jesus said, I will build my specific, I'll build my ecclesia, Unlike the rest of them, it's my specific outcalled group, my church. By the way, the best translation of the word ecclesia is the word assembly, which is why all those years ago we decided to be Grace Christian Assembly instead of Grace Christian Church without thinking about the fact that that was going to make people think that we were an assembly of God church. And for our first several years of existence, we would have tongue talkers wander in here thinking that we were an assembly of God church. And you can just imagine their disappointment and chagrin when they found out that they were in a room full of Calvinists. They were usually quite surprised. The people who've been around for a long time remember the one guy who stood up, cursed us all to hell, and stormed out. Oh, yes. Oh, it was a lovely morning. Yeah. It wasn't pretty. <laughs> so ekklesia, assembly, is then the word that the Greek translators used when translating the Old Testament. And you would read about the assembly of Israel. The assembly of Israel, when they were walking through the wilderness, Israel had a lot of assemblies. And so the assembly of Israel was translated into the Greek as ecclesia. ekklesia. And then in some translations of the Old Testament that came from that Greek version of the Old Testament, you end up with Israel in the Old Testament being translated as church. And then there's confusion, especially if you are covenantal and you believe that Israel is the church in the Old Testament and the church is the Israel of the New Testament. You would point to those translations and say, see, even here... Israel is referred to as the church. And it happens in the New Testament, where the assembly in the wilderness, the ecclesia in the wilderness, is translated sometimes, the church in the wilderness. And people say, see, there's my New Testament evidence that in fact Israel's called the church. But you have to understand the process of translation to realize how it ended up there. The Bible itself never confuses the two categories, Israel and the church. Okay, so what Jesus actually said to Peter is, you'll be called little stone, little rock, pebble. That's what petros, diminutive, means. But on this petra, on this large rock, I will build my ecclesia. And unlike every other outcalled group or ecclesia, The gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against my group. So much so that when he died, he went to the heart of the earth. He went to Abraham's bosom, the place that the Greeks referred to as Hades, the underworld. And while he was there, he took captivity captive and brought them with him when he left because the gates of hell could not keep, contain, or prevail against the outcalling of Christ. He could outcall people here on the planet, and he could go get his people under the planet. And someday, he's going to come snatch his people off the planet. Because when he calls, his people come. And it doesn't matter where they are. It doesn't matter where he finds them. By the way, if he could call people out of Hades, he can call people out of Smyrna. Mm -hmm. I did not just equate (laughs) hell and Smyrna. (laughs) Don't you nod at me, Tyler. (laughs) My point is, if he wants to get you, he's going to get you. If you belong to him, He's going to come get you. And he's not going to leave you behind. And he's not going to forget anybody. And he's not going to miss out on some part of his body or his bride. When he comes to get his church, he's coming to get his church. And when he calls you out of your darkness into his light, you're going to move from your darkness into his light. Because he has that kind of authority. So now let's talk about this keys thing. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. By the way, you will notice in the Gospels, there is no point at which you hear Jesus say, here, Peter, here are those keys I talked about. (laughs) There is no designation on Jesus' part of Peter as the leader of the future church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Now, we've got to talk about Greek tenses again. There are two words being used here. Didemanon and manan" to bind and to loose, are both in what's called the perfect passive tense. They are perfect passive participles. The reason this is important is that had they been properly translated into the English language, it wouldn't say whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, it would say whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. That's what a perfect passive participle does. It's not that heaven is responding to what they do. It's what they do is in response to what has been done in heaven. For instance, later, Peter will come across a man who he says uh, he recognized that the man had the faith to be healed. Okay, so what is Peter doing? He's responding to what heaven has already done. Heaven has already given the man the faith to be healed, and so then Peter responds by calling out a healing on a lame man. So in fact, if I was reading it with the tenses correct, and some of the modern translations actually do translate it in the proper tense. Jesus said to him, "'I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven.'" And whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. In other words, you're simply decreeing and demonstrating what heaven has already determined. That is the exact opposite, by the way, of how the Roman Catholic Church has determined this verse should be translated or what they think this verse actually means. Because they have taken that authority, given it specifically to Peter, made Peter the rock on which the church was built, and then said that they themselves have the power, the ability to forgive or bind sin. But that is an interpretive trick they're playing, because you know somewhere down the line somebody was smart enough in the Greek language to recognize that that's not really what Jesus said. But... You know, tradition makes the word of God of no effect. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about this keys thing for a moment. Back in Isaiah 22, we read about God specifically assigning the keys to David's house, to a particular keeper of the house, a particular chancellor who was going to watch over the house. One of the characteristics of being the guy who protected the king's house was that if you opened the door, nobody else had the authority to shut the door. If you shut and lock the door, nobody else had the authority to open the door. Because you're the one who has the key, so you're the one who has the right to open and close. Go back to Isaiah 22 for a second, and we'll see that. And then we'll be right back here in Matthew, so keep your finger there. Isaiah 22. Isaiah 22, 22. Actually, we'll start in verse 20. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. And I will entrust him with the authority. And he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder And when he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. So Jesus is picking up that sort of language here when he says, I'll give you the keys of heaven. And whatever you shall bind stays bound because it was bound in heaven. Whatever you loose stays loosed because it was loosed in heaven. But then turn over to uh, John 20 verse 23 for a moment. John twenty twenty three, 23, and really we need to back up a little bit from that so we see the group he's talking to. Look at verse 19, when therefore it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace. Now, by the way, this is after his death, burial, and resurrection, And when he said this to them, he showed them both his hands and his side. And the disciples, therefore, rejoiced when they saw the Lord. And Jesus also said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins. Now here again, you've got that perfect passive participle tense. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them already. Heavenly forgiveness. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So now, if Jesus, speaking to Peter back in Matthew 16, was Jesus saying, you, Peter, are the rock, and so I'm going to give the keys of heaven to you specifically, And because it belongs to you specifically, you have the power and authority to forgive or bind sin. After his resurrection, he's here talking to all of them and saying they have that same power and same authority. So where again is the primacy of Peter? No, it doesn't exist biblically. You get my point? Last place. Revelation 1. Turn there. Book of Revelation, chapter 1. John sees Christ in his glory, in his splendor. The book Revelation, uh, the word Revelation, is apocalypsis, which means an unveiling, an uncovering. The book of Revelation is not a revelation of the end times as much as it is the revelation of Jesus Christ in his final glory, in his final kingdom, in his full authority. So let's start in chapter 1, verse 18. John is on the Isle of Patmos. Let's go ahead and read this just because it's such a wonderful description. Starting in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the Isle called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, One like a son of man. See that nomenclature again? There's that son of man language. And he was clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and he was girded across his breast with a golden girdle. And his head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. And his feet were like burnished bronze when it is caused to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters, and in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first. I am the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. Okay, so now, does he mean I have a literal key, like on a key chain, where I go down every once in a while and lock the door and unlock the door at Hades? Or is he saying, I have complete authority over death in Hades? Obviously, it's, a, it's an authority thing. And that helps us understand what Jesus meant when he was talking to Peter and said, I'm going to give you keys of the kingdom. He wasn't giving him a physical, literal key. Here you go. Hold on to this. Don't lose that. That's the key to the kingdom. If you lose that, you know, what are we going to do? Nobody gets in. You got to call a locksmith. Hold on to that. It's not what he was saying. I'm giving you authority, but what shape did the authority take? The shape the authority took was, you will be able to pronounce things that are already settled in heaven. You're going to have a heavenly insight where you're going to be able to loose and bind here on earth the things that heaven has determined to loose and bind. One last verse, also in Revelation. Turn to Revelation 3. In his message to the church at Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, starting at verse 7, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, now that's really interesting, that's why we started at Isaiah 22, because in Isaiah 22, God specifically determined who was going to have the key to open and shut the house of David. Now, Jesus says, I have that key. I'm the one in charge of the house of David. What's the significance of that? Well, he is the completion of the Davidic covenant. He is the son of David who will sit on David's throne, who will rule. So he identifies himself as, I'm the one who's holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one can shut, and who shuts and no one opens. And I say this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have little power, but you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. So here he is saying, I'm the one who now has the authority of kingship. I have absolute lordship. I am the son of David, and I am the keeper of the door of David's house. And when I open, no one can shut it. When I shut it, no one can open it, and I'm telling you, I opened a door for you. Because I'm in charge, and if I've opened the door for you, no one can shut it. So this language of keys always has to do with authority. And once you get that idea straight then you recognize when you put it all together that the conversation he had with Peter was, on the rock of your testimony that I am the Christ, that's the rock on which I'm going to build my church. But you are going to have authority that has to do with the kingdom of heaven. And the way that authority is going to manifest is that things that have been settled in heaven are going to be things that you are going to announce and pronounce. So Very unlike the Roman Catholic notion, Jesus did not give Peter earthly power that heaven would respond to. What he did say is, you're going to have an understanding and an authority here on earth that is a heavenly authority given to you. But notice later when he returned and spoke to all of his disciples, he gave them all that authority. So, again, you don't see the primacy of Peter in the church, in the Gospels. So that kind of undermines the whole Roman Catholic structure. But it is what the Bible says. And then he warned his disciples, Matthew 16, 20, that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. He has confirmed it. I am the Christ. You got it. Human beings didn't tell you that. My father who's in heaven told you that. Now, don't tell anybody else. Why? Because once it is openly announced that he is the Christ, the very next thing that happens is the crucifixion, Mm -hmm. which is why within a week, he goes from the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey that has never been ridden before, while people throw their cloaks and palm branches in the street and cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. There's that David connection again. They recognize him as David's greater son. They recognize him as the king of Israel. That is his inauguration parade as he rides in triumphantly into Jerusalem. And right behind it, within a week, he's dead. And he knows that. He knows the series of events. First, he has to be recognized as their king. When he dies, Pilate actually writes above him and nails it onto his cross, king of the Jews, in three languages, so that everybody knows that's who's hanging there. Mm -hmm. All of this has to be done, and it has to be done in succession, and it has to be done on time. And so he says, I am the Christ. You're absolutely right. Good profession, Peter. Don't tell anybody. Not yet. Once he rises... He says, now go out and tell all nations. Tell every living creature. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I'm right up there with the Father. Go out and baptize in my name now. But before the cross, he was in control of how his reputation and how his fame spread because he was on a schedule and he had to die on that particular Passover. But he's in complete control. So then, starting at verse 21, he tells them that. He tells them that he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to be turned over, and he's going to be killed. And you would think that after Peter's great moment that he just had, you would think that Peter would be the first one to say, Right, that's what the scripture says. Right, you're just telling us what the prophets have already predicted. Because remember, after his death, burial, and resurrection, when he's walking on the Emmaus Road with a couple of his disciples, it says that starting at Moses and the prophets, he revealed to them all the scripture that had to do with him. So here he is saying, now I'm going to tell you what's about to happen, and they should have said, and Peter in particular should have said, right, that's the scripture. What does Peter say? Something so wrong that Jesus calls him Satan to his face. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up the third day. That's the essence of the gospel. He has just told them the essentials of the gospel story. I am the Christ. You're right. I am the son of the living God. That's right. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be killed. In three days, I'll be back. Wouldn't you think then that when he raised three days after, that the 11 remaining would have been standing there going, yep, we knew it. There you are, just like you said. What did they do? They ran, they scattered, they tried to save their own skin. Peter denies him three times, swearing like a fisherman. I don't know him. And Jesus predicted that's what they would do. When he died, everybody abandoned him. Because the work he had to accomplish, he had to accomplish alone. Nobody else could take credit. Nobody else could say, I was in on it. Nobody else could say, had it figured out, got it. John would tell us that the reason they didn't get it, the reason they didn't understand it, is that the Holy Spirit hadn't come yet. And that when the Spirit came, the Spirit did exactly what Jesus said he would do. He reminded them of everything that Jesus said and taught. Up until then, they just didn't get it. Why? Because they couldn't get it. Because natural men, even with every single advantage even with seeing Jesus personally, walk, talk, and speak. If Jesus was here now in Smyrna, Tennessee, walking through the city, speaking, preaching, and doing miracles, there would still be people who would deny him because they wouldn't have a choice, because they wouldn't have the capability to understand him. It was that way 2,000 years ago. It's that way to this very day, which is why we can read the scripture to some people, and it's light, and it's food, and it's it's the basis for why we live and breathe. You read that same scripture to some people and they go, I don't buy that. I don't believe that. Which is why Paul would say that the same word has that scent of life unto life for some people, but for some people it has the scent of death unto death. Same scripture. Anyway, so Jesus said, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, he was going to be killed, he was going to be raised up the third day and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's nerve. Mm -hmm. By the way, think about how familiar Peter had to be with Jesus to feel comfortable taking him aside and rebuking him. He knew him really well. These guys had been traveling around for years. They're close. And he felt comfortable after having said, you're the Messiah, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. And after Jesus saying, you didn't figure that out, God in heaven gave you the ability to understand that. Even after all that, Peter felt comfortable taking Jesus aside and saying to him, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Okay, number one, you don't know your scripture. Number two, you have just denied the declarative statements of the person you just said is the son of God. Not smart. (laughs) And Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, kind and loving Jesus, turns to him and uses a phrase that the last time you find the phrase, Jesus used during his temptation after his baptism. Forty days in the wilderness. After the three temptations that Satan put in front of him, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And the implication is get behind me and keep going. Just go. You got nothing here. Jesus yanks out that phrase at this moment, looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. What? (laughs) Because you are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. Okay, what does that tell you? That tells you that Peter was saying, you know, this is working well for me. I'm one of your 12 closest, arguably one of your three closest, me, John, and James. And if you just go on and and be king, given the kind of power we've seen from you, the walking on the water or the feeding the five and the 4,000, given the kind of authority and power you have, and since you are the very son of God, if you just stay here and set up the kingdom... I'm your right-hand man. This works for me. And when he heard that Jesus, whom he loved, Jesus, who is demonstrably the Son of God, was going to suffer at the hands of the Jews, who Jesus has been walking around saying, beware of those guys. Jesus has been clear that they're not accurate, they're not right, they're not just or fair, they're dishonest, they're a brood of vipers. And then Jesus says, and I'm going to be turned over to them. And they're going to hurt me. And they're going to punish me. They're going to beat me. They're going to mock me. They're going to spit on me. They're going to kill me. You can see why Peter would go, no, 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 no. No, no. that can't be the way this works. But Jesus says, you don't get what's happening here. You're so wrapped up in your flesh. You're so wrapped up in man's way of thinking that you don't cherish the things of God because the things of God include the fact that I came to the planet to do this very thing. I'll be back in three days. And if I don't go to the cross, you don't go to heaven. And no matter how much good you might uh, be benefited by, by me staying here, No matter how many advantages you think you might be afforded, if I stick around, when you die, you're going to be judged and go to eternal torment if I don't die. So he didn't have his mind on heavenly things. He didn't have his mind on God's things. He had his mind on man's fleshly things, where the whole idea of Jesus being turned over to fleshly men was repugnant to him. And you know what? I kind of get that. Because to me, to this very day, the fact that the very son of man in flesh would submit that flesh to evil men so that they could mock and scourge and spit, they ripped his beard out of his face while they were punching him. They actually blindfolded him and punched him and said, "Okay, you're a prophet. Who's hitting you? Massive mockery. After scourging and tearing his back, they then put a robe on him, which had to hurt tremendously. All that raw skin, and then you lay heavy cloth across it. And they put a reed on his hand and a crown of thorns on his head to make him look like a mock king while they made fun of him because he was king of the Jews. And he actually submitted himself to that. Why? So Kellen wouldn't go to hell. Everything he went through... He didn't go through for himself. He even said, Father, return me to the glory that I had with you before the worlds were formed. If he had gone back to heaven, he would still be sitting at the right hand of God. But he came here and submitted himself to the will of God. This very amazing phrase that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He turned his obedience over to his father and said, not my will, but your will be done. And he did all of that so that all the people whose names were written down in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world would, in fact, ultimately be redeemed and stand in his presence and glory forever. He had to die. And Peter didn't get it. So the roller coaster of Peter... Mr. Open Mouth Insert Sandal, is that he went from the declaration of who Christ was that became the rock on which Christ built his church. Well done Peter. And went all the way to no, don't let that happen. Let that be far from you. To Jesus saying, get behind me Satan. Because you are not setting your mind on God's Interests, but man's. Now, turn over to Luke 22 for a minute. We're we're nearly done here. Turn to Luke 22 because this is the place where one of the most frightening phrases you'll find anywhere in the New Testament is said. Luke 22 verse 31, as they're preparing for the Passover and then they're sitting down to eat the Passover together, and Jesus institutes what we call the Lord's Supper. Even at that moment, even at that table, even in that pivotal moment when Jesus has said, with great longing, with great desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. I mean, these are really important things that are happening. And you know what they're doing? Arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. Still in their flesh. Still arguing about themselves. Starting at verse 24 of Luke 22 and there arose a dispute among them as to which one of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. But let him who is greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as a servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves at the table? Is it not the one who's reclining? But I'm among you as one who serves. He'd been washing their feet. He's saying, look at me as your example. I'm the greatest one in the room, and I'm serving you. So why are you arguing about what greatness is or what greatness looks like or who will be the greatest? He has made himself the example. Verse 28... And you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, which, by the way, kind of fits very nicely with what we've been studying on Wednesday nights, that there is a future still for Israel and the regathering of Israel. If they're going to be judging the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel have to actually exist. Does that make sense? I will grant you to eat and to drink at my table in the kingdom. You will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he looks at Peter, who must have been in the middle of this argument. Obviously, Peter's getting caught up in his ego again. And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. Your behavior has been such that Satan, who knows, he gets one of my 12. The scripture says so. Remember, Satan quoted scripture to Jesus. Satan is more familiar with scripture than the vast majority of churchgoers. He was willing to quote scripture to Jesus. He was willing to twist it. He was willing to misuse it, but he was willing to quote it. Now, he knows from the scripture that he gets one of the 12, and he believes it's Peter. Because after all, Jesus has turned to him and said, get behind me, Satan. And Satan is going, well, there it is. That's the one. Can you imagine how sobering it is that Jesus looked Peter in the eye and said, Satan and I had a conversation. He brought you up. He thinks you're the one. And he has demanded from me that I turn you over to him. By the way, very interesting. Notice that Satan couldn't get him until Jesus gave him. Because Jesus is still in control, not Satan. And he says, Satan has demanded of me that I turn you over to him. For what purpose? To sift you like wheat. By the way, what did he ultimately do to Judas? Tormented Judas until Judas hung himself. And then his body crashed down into a potter's field, sifted him like wheat. So what is the solution for Peter? Peter, who has been called Satan to his face by Jesus. Peter, who has been told Satan desires to have you, that he can sift you like wheat. What's his solution? What's his only hope? Verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when you are turned again, then you strengthen your brethren. is that great? You, when you're converted, you, after you've been turned back. Okay, so now he has to be turned back and strengthen the brethren. And so you get to the end of the book of John, and they're all by the seaside at the Sea of Galilee. They've decided to go back to fishing. That's what they know to do. And Jesus shows up on the shore. And it's Peter who says it's the Lord and can't wait for the boat, jumps in the water and swims to the shore. And when he gets there, after they've been fishing all night and caught nothing, he says, brothers, do you have any meat? They say, no, we've got nothing. He says, cast out on the other side. They go, well, we've been fishing all night and not caught anything. But since you say so, they throw out on the other side. They bring in a net so heavy they can't drag it all the way to the shore. That's when Peter realizes, wait, that's the Lord. Jumps into the water, gets to the shore. What's Jesus doing? Cooking fish. Because this really isn't about fish. They think it's about fish, it's not. So Peter, who had three times denied the Lord, needs to be turned, needs to be converted. And he can't get to Jesus because Jesus has sailed off the planet and gone up into heaven. So Jesus comes to Peter. And three times says to Peter, do you love me? And with each affirmation, he says, feed my sheep. In other words, once you're converted, strengthen your brethren. And he couldn't do it without Christ's intervention. So Christ came back to the planet for him, to change him, to convert him, to strengthen him. The conversation between Jesus and Peter has some interesting Greek in it that is missed in the English language because, as I've told you before, there are two different words for love in the New Testament. There are three words for love in the classical Greek language. The third word, eros, erotic, physical, fleshly love, you don't find anywhere in the New Testament. But then there's phileo, brotherly love, and then there's agape, sacrificial love. Each of the first two times... That Jesus said to Peter, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than your brethren? Each time that he said it, he said, do you agapao me? Do you sacrificially love me? And Peter answered, you know that I phileo you. After he had said, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. So then Jesus asked him a second time, do you agapa'o me? You know that I'm phileo you. Feed my sheep. The third time, Jesus said, do you phileo me? Jesus stepped down to where Peter was, met him where he was. And he said, you know everything. And you know that I love you. He said, feed my sheep. And then he told Peter what was going to happen to Peter. They're going to bind you, and they're going to take you to places you don't want to go. And then John tells us he was talking about the way Peter was going to be martyred. History tells us, best tradition, that when it came time for Peter to be crucified, he said that he could not be crucified the same way his Lord was, and so he was crucified upside down because he felt it was too great an honor to be crucified the way his Lord was. Mm. In other words, Jesus taught him how to love sacrificially, which was the thing he couldn't quite get to, but he learned it. Mm. So, notice again the phenomenal humility of Christ, who would say to Peter on your profession that I am the son of the living God, on that profession, on that rock, that Petra, I'm going to build my church. And flesh and blood didn't teach that to you. My father in heaven has blessed you with that knowledge. And yet that very same Peter would turn around and say, go to Jerusalem and die? Let that be far from you. And Jesus would say, get behind me, Satan. You don't cherish the things of God you care about the things of men. And that same Peter, while arguing about who would be greatest, Jesus said to him, Satan has desired to have you and sift you like wheat. That same night, Jesus told that same Peter, while they were busy bragging, and Peter was saying, if all men abandon you, I'll never leave you. And Jesus said, before the cock crows, you'll deny me three times. You still don't know what kind of man you are, and you still don't know what you're talking about. And Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, and you're about to run and deny me. All of which he did, and we read in the Gospels that when he denied him the third time, Jesus, from the place of judgment where he was being judged and mocked, locked eyes with Peter, and Peter ran out into the night. That same Jesus came to that same Peter By the Sea of Galilee and restored him three times.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And told him that ultimately Peter was going to end up sacrificed for Christ's sake. Who won? (laughs) In that friction, that discussion, that ongoing struggle between Christ and Peter, who won? Jesus, Jesus dominated Peter and he did it through instruction and he did it through grace and he did it through his sovereign ability to control the outcome of Peter's life until to this day, 2000 years later, we're still talking about Peter because God's in control. And Christ is sovereign, and he is, in fact, the son of God. And if he's going to get you, he's going to get you. And by the way, notice that when he gets you, he'll teach you, he'll train you, he'll restore you. He'll expect you then to go out and care for his people, take care of your brethren, look after each other. And, oh, yeah, sacrifice is part of the journey. So when you go through your sacrifice, when you go through your times of trouble, You're just going through what Peter went through. And by the way, the writer of Hebrews said, you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. But the apostles did. So when you're going through your struggle, that's nothing strange, nothing you should be surprised by. That's the way Christianity works. The good news is, you can't fall far enough. You can't rebel hard enough to get out of his grip or his desire and determination to restore you. And you'll always end up restored. And you'll ultimately end up glorified. And none of it, from first to last, from your understanding of who he is until the moment that you're standing in glory as a trophy of grace, none of it was you. It was all him. He did it all, beginning to end, first to last. And that's the Peter story.
1: Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.